Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. <laughs> oh. That's funny, huh? Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. That's right. We also work our nine-to-five jobs together, we teach together, and we own the Lovett Company. We do so much together, and we wanted to share some of our tips and tricks for living out our 24-7 relationship. That's right. A relationship that is all day, every day. Plus, we wanted to share with you how we managed to run our business alongside full-time jobs and still find time for kids, chores, and fun. So in this podcast, the Success in Black and White podcast, we will talk about navigating the gray in life. So get ready, get ready, get ready. We're going to be bringing to you Real Talk concepts every week as we share some of our stories, best practices, as well as talk to guests about how they found success by doing extraordinary things in their everyday lives. Please stay tuned as we jump in with Cameron Beatty. Dr. Cameron C. Beatty is an assistant professor in the Educational Leadership and Policy Study Department at Florida State University. Dr. Beatty teaches courses in the Undergraduate Leadership Studies Program and the Higher Education Graduate Program, as well as conducts research with the Leadership Learning Research Center. Dr. Beatty's research, FOSSI, includes exploring the intersection of gender and race in leadership education, leadership development of students of color on historically white college campuses, and understanding experiences of racial battle fatigue for students of color. He is a scholar passionate about deconstructing race, systemic racism, and hegemonic masculinity in post-secondary education environments. Dr. Beatty co-hosts Scholar Tea, a fun and witty podcast with Dr. Shauna Patterson-Stevens that explores current issues higher education from a critical perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White. The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again. We are. And tonight we are not alone. We are not alone. We love these podcast episodes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. (laughs) We get to talk to other people besides ourselves. It it is amazing, and especially um, on this episode for me. I'm going to put it out there right now like I'm already in fan mode. Um, I had an opportunity to kind of do some research research on uh, yes thank you thank you do some research on who we're going to be talking with tonight and everything that I was reading I was like this is for me this is for me um so I will do my best to make sure that I don't dominate the conversation <laughs> and I give our guest the appropriate amount of time to speak his piece um so tonight we're joined by Cameron and um you've heard his bio and you know the work that he's done all the accolades We're going to jump right in and we want you to tell our audience about you, what your calling is, your passion, your purpose for the work that you do. Well, thank you, Daryl and April, for having me. This is exciting for me as well and to be able to engage um, with with an audience that I might not be able to engage with. So thank you all for thinking of me and inviting me. Um, So I'm just a Midwestern boy uh, from Indianapolis, Indiana, born and raised uh, and um, I I see myself as an educator. I see myself as a lifelong um, learner, 
Uh, been in Florida now for three years. I'm entering into my third year here in Florida, uh, but lived in uh, Indiana, obviously. Uh, Iowa, I did my, my doctorate in Iowa. You probably share that in my bio. And um, I moved here from Boston where I was living in Salem, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. And it's very different than Tallahassee uh, up there in New England. Um, but I, I feel very blessed and I'm on a path that I feel like is a calling in the sense of being an educator, how I arrived at Florida State, doing the work that I get to do that aligns with my research and my personal passions. Um, I really see myself as a leadership educator in the sense of how do we really think about leadership as a process and not positional or high, um, think about it as, an, um, as a hierarchy um, and being able to have college students disrupt uh, all of their socialization of, of what leadership is and what leadership can be and then reimagine possibilities that are just equitable um, and, and rooted in, in finding um, their own passions and their own understandings of who they are and who they want to be in the, in the world they want to live. And I know that sounds really lofty uh, and, and really optimistic, uh, but if I can, you know, have a student come in and question, well, why do you believe that? And where do those beliefs come from? And then start to really align themselves with what do they really believe? And then what did mom and daddy tell them to believe? Um, and really think critically about what are your values? How do your, how does your career goals? How do your passions? How does the family you want to raise align with those things? And to me, that's the joy. That's the joy of, of what I get to do. So I see myself as an educator and a lifelong, lifelong learner, learner um, in those realms. And being in the classroom is definitely, I think, a calling for, for me that I feel like I'm, I'm living out. Awesome. That's amazing. I so I, Go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. The restrictions are off. She tells me to go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, um, as you're answering the question and kind of informing us, and you're talking about, um, you know, the parents and the students kind of figuring out and, and feeling their way through when they come to us. When I say us, that's us in higher education. Um, what are some of the challenges that you experience or have experienced? with some of those students maybe that are having a hard time disconnecting from mm. the parents or from some of those backgrounds that they come to us from? Yeah. Um, early on in my teaching, right after I finished my doctorate, I stayed at Iowa State in Ames, Iowa, Go Cyclones. Um, I stayed there for a couple of years as a lecturer uh, and I coordinated the leadership studies program there in that, in that role. And uh, not to be stereotypical, but this is my experience there was a lot of white kids from Iowa, farm country. Um, and for many of them, I would do this activity for every semester. The first activity when I introduce myself is, raise your hand if you've ever had a person of color, a black person, a black gay man as, your, as, a, as a teacher in all of your education experience. And of course, there would never be no hands, of course, right? So that's the reality of, they were sophomores and juniors in that class and I'm the first person of color, first black person, first black gay per openly get black gay person to stand in front of them, right? And to me, that has to be named, right? Like that has to be named and acknowledged. Um, and I think that was a very important piece because then that introduced them to what they could expect in the class with me. Um, 
so sorry to say all of that. Let me get to the story of the student with resistance because I had a lot of resistance in that experience. And this, I always talk about, um, I'm talking about two students. So one student I always talk about is Brittany, conservative white woman, worked for Marco Rubio's campaign. Um, what was that 2016? 2016 campaign? Um, just really diehard um, conservative. And I was not a person, some of my colleagues said that I shouldn't do this, but I brought up, I mean, it's a leadership class. I was in Iowa. It's a very political state, especially around election time and primary time. I, that's, and that's one, that's the only thing I miss about, because I'm a political person, that's the only thing I miss about um, about that place is, is the primaries. But um, I would bring up politics. I would bring up what's happening in, in the classroom. And of course, I'm not going to, you could probably guess my political views. Um, and that's not something that I want to be neutral about. Um, but but when the reason why I say that is because some people feel like they can't express their political views because you are supposed to be neutral. For me, me expressing my political views is not you not telling you to align with them, right? I'm expressing them, number one, to show you who I am and what I value and where those values align with where we are politically. But number two, for you to also feel comfortable expressing yours to be able to, and be able to be able to articulate why you believe that or why you value that. For me, it was more important for you to ex be able to express that than for us to agree or you, for you to have the same values as me. I just wanted you to be able to stand in what you believed. Um, and she was all about it. She was like, you know, anti-abortion, all of the things, gun rights, all of the things. Um, and we became really, really close, uh, like teacher-student relationship in the sense of she respected, she respected me because I allowed her in some ways to be able to make meaning of what she believed, make meaning of what, her, what she experienced. Um, for, for us to be so different, um, we became very, very close, close friends. And I value that because when you get resistance in the classroom, oftentimes the resistance comes from the person's insecurity about what something new, or you might be disrupting their world, you might be disrupting what they've always been told. And that's where the resistance comes from. The other example I have is there was a student in a scholarship program that I ran and she would not give me the time of day in the sense of I'd be in the classroom lecturing and she's rolling her eyes, the body language. Um, and I, I mean, I just totally dismissed it, especially around issue when I was talking about diversity and equity issues in the classroom. Um, she was someone that didn't see color um, or why do we always have to talk about race? Um, all of those things, right? And the George Floyd thing happened this summer and I probably, it's probably been eight years since I've had her in a class. Um, and I got this email and it was an apology. What? Um, yeah, and it was an apology of how she responded to me when we talked about different issues. And she's in graduate school now, and she's like, I can see how my behavior was problematic and dismissive, and I want to apologize. I was, yeah, I was, it totally knocked me up, knocked me back um, in, the, in the sense of, uh, I always say this to my graduate students, um, because they want to change the world, right? Like, how do I get students to get it? And what I always say is you probably have heard this analogy, but I hopefully can take it a step further of, um, in some ways we as educators are planting seeds and you have to be okay with being the seed planter. You might not ever be able to water it. You might not ever be, see, be able to see it grow. You might not ever be able to shine light, shine the sunlight on it ever again, but it still might grow, right? And that possibility of growth is why you continue to plant the seed. So if you can commit to be a, a seed planter as an educator, 
your impact can go way beyond what you could ever imagine. Um, so I, I try to get students to, to shift their thinking about um, being educators in the classroom, especially people that are about social justice and equity, because you can't, you can't flip somebody's world upside down and think they're gonna be a changed person tomorrow. It just doesn't happen that way. And when I mean, you don't want it to happen that way, you wanna see growth, you want them to experience life, um, but that doesn't mean you don't stop calling out the bull crap, the bullshit, can I cuss? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You you start calling out. That doesn't mean that you stop doing those things. Um, It just means that you, you understand that you're doing them knowing that there will be resistance, knowing that there might be somebody that might not get it, knowing that you might not feel like you have done the work or you have made an impact, but that doesn't mean like eight years later, you won't get an email from somebody that still remembers you and the impact that you might've had on them. Oh man. You going to <laughs> I know. I took I took a whole lot away from that, but yeah. three things definitely um that I want to make sure I repeat back that I took from this. The first was I, I I think that is awesome that um you give the students the opportunity to engage with you in those conversations, especially around politics and things like that. Um I know um for instance uh that a lot of times it's kind of like shut down and it's like, well, we're not going to really discuss that. But one, I really think that that's awesome. And um, uh, the second is that um, that that's amazing with the seed. I know I, I have a hard time because I, I got to see the fruit. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I got to see the fruit. Let me see a leaf or something. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I, I definitely think that that was speaking to me that it's OK. And, and April has really been helping me grow in that area. Um, because she's like, somebody just emailed me or somebody just mm-hmm. sent a message that says that they're taking away things from that we're doing. Um, and, and that's the second. And then the third is your energy. I, I wish I could have had a, a, <laughs> a professor like you when I was in college. Um, most of my professors, they were dry. And it was like, <laughs> you just sit there and listen and take your notes and then uh, you yeah, get out. I got it. <laughs> So definitely the energy um, is very appreciative. And I'm sure that that also makes the students feel a little bit more warm about being able to approach you and to send that email. I know that my professors, eight years later, I'm not emailing any of them. Ten years later, I'm not emailing any of them. Um, I was just glad to get through the class and get out. But the fact that, you know, the energy level and the openness that you have with the students. um, Yeah. And I love I mean, this is. You're helping reinforce something tonight because <laughs> we talk about this. She's going to put my business out I'm there. I'm just saying. I'm I just already saying. did it in my own way. I'm She's just saying. Like, go ahead, go ahead. For the past, we've been doing this for two years. And when we decided to start a podcast, we had a very strong intention that we were going to be educating. Like that was really important to us. It was important to share our story. And it's been really, really important for us to really talk through racial and social justice issues. And through that, we find, and and I think I do want to give you credit because this happens in on my in my friend zone. In my when we share on social media, when we share this podcast with others, the people who you see the seed or they'll come to me and they'll say, you really changed my perspective happens on my side because surprise, I'm from the Midwest, which happens also to have very little diversity. So all the people I know are basically white people that I grew up with. And so for them to not grow up with 
hardly any diversity and then to listen to the things that we talk about, they're coming back to me two years later saying, I've been listening to you for two years and it's starting to sink in. Mm -hmm. And so we get to see some of those seeds, but he's Mm -hmm. like, well, how come they go to you? Well, (laughs) it's because the people who follow me or I'm friends with are the ones who probably need it more than your friends who get it, you know? Um, I'm so happy that you said that because you kind of helped reinforce for him. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was is... like, I need to see this. I need the fruit. <laughs> always needs the fruit. fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and like she said, um, my friends, which, which I want to get to in a little bit, but I'm going to let you make sure we get through the questions. My friends on my side, obviously our whole theme is bridging the gap between racial boundaries. So my friends are, they're kind of like, oh man, like, I'm glad you said that. You know, I'm glad you're speaking up about that. So that's kind of the side that I get. And and it's not really the seeds. It's just kind of like that inspiration for them. So that's kind of how my half of it Mm -hmm. is. And then her side is they're being educated. They're learning more about. They're having more side conversations with me. They're saying, can you explain this more? Because I didn't under, like, I didn't know this. I still don't really understand it. And so we get to kind of have some of those more in-depth, I get to have more in-depth conversations, but he doesn't see it as much. And so I'm glad you said that because I think it's hard to plant the seed and then it's hard to like not see the fruit for him. And I do get to see it more often. So I'm like, we're doing good things. And there at the same are. time, we get pushback. Like, I'm sure you get pushback. So, you know, for every negative, I feel like there's two or three positives, at least for us. I hope yeah. that's true for you, too. Like, you're <laughs> oh, seeing absolutely. fruits yeah. of your labor. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And even if you don't, it's like that one person that that's the fruit is then going to go impact two or three people, right? So your mm. legacy of the fruit lives on. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, we want to know because you are the, you are an expert in higher education, but I want to know from your lens and from your frame, what is the greatest issue right now and the greatest challenge that higher education faces? Um, that's a great question. And I've, I've been <laughs> reflecting on it and I, and I think it's, I think that it's connected to many things, right? So for me, the purpose of higher education and under and defining the purpose, I think is the greatest challenge. So we think about where we are in COVID-19 and you remember the spring, campus is shutting down, we get to the fall, are we reopening or not, right? And a lot of, and if you saw some of these campuses, a lot of these decisions were made around a business decision, right? So are we a business and we're offering a service and we're in the business of customer service? Are we educating people for the common good are we educating people for the purpose of going out for them, like for themselves and being able to thrive and, you know, contribute to society? Like, what is the purpose of education? And I think there's right now 80,000 different purposes that are happening. Um, and I think that's a challenge, right? That's a challenge of doing the work. The faculty have one way of governing the university, the administration, the president have another way. There's a board of governors that are above all of those people who have no understanding of higher education and no background, right? So there's there's so many um, conflicting interests happening 
that that's the challenge, right? So those of us that are in it for education and educating have to appease those people that are in it to balance the budget, right? And to me, that's just a challenge that's messy no matter what time of year it is. But I think it's been heightened in what's happening with COVID. It's heightened when it's happening with racial, racial injustice and racial tension. It's, happen it's heightened um, when we think about uh, what's happening in athletics. It's heightened when we think about what's happening with sexual assault in Title IX. So any challenge, I think, is, goes back to there's a conflict of, of interest and, and dueling interests of what is the purpose of higher education. Mm. Yes. <laughs> All of that. All of that. <laughs> All of that. I had so many thoughts when you said that, like thinking yeah. about, you know, one of the most recent things that I know you're aware of, but I sit in enrollment management meetings and it's like all of the, it's like the registrar and the, and admissions, like all of the people. And they're always talking about how the board of governors is not going to let UF or FSU, the only two in the top 100, stop accepting test scores. And I'm like, this makes no sense because it has the greatest impact on the people in low socioeconomic areas who cannot get to a testing site. Well, no. who is our low SES? typically are more diverse, marginalized populations. And so how are we going to keep bragging as an institution that we serve diverse populations, that we're a Hispanic serving institution, and yet we <laughs> are, we're, we're putting all these barriers in the way for students to be able to get to us and learn from us? So April, I'm fighting that battle right now at the graduate level. So, really? Yeah, our program, I want to get rid of the GR, like, Number one, there's no re research that shows that the GRCE score, the GRE score predicts how successful you're going to be as a graduate student, uh, right? Like it's just the, the, all the data is there. Um, but the pushback, I'm not, I'm not tenure yet, but I don't really care. Um, <laughs> the pushback that, that I'm getting from the dean, associate dean, our department is getting is that we want to be a top ranked college of education and you have to have these test scores be a top, the same, same with the institution, right? And for me, we can't say, because our department, um, our program, higher ed program has taken up leadership, social justice, and student success as our pillars. And there were a number of higher ed programs that dropped the GRE last year, top rank, top rank programs. So we were like, we are in this thing, we can show the data, we can show all the programs that we're competing against have dropped the GRE. Top students are gonna apply to those programs because they don't have to take the GRE. So we, we did all this research, developed this report. They were like, nah, Flea. <laughs> <laughs> so now COVID happens and people can't take the GRE or uh -huh. the people are, um, what's it called? Are they, what's it, when they push it back, they're, they're excusing it until 2020, 22 emissions or 21 emissions. Um, but I think coming out of COVID, it's just like, that's another argument of, look, we can admit quality students without their test score. Um, and it's and in, in the, it's the capital, it's the capitalism for me as well. Yes. These testing places, ETS is making millions of billions of dollars off of these test scores. So they have an invested interest to lobby, you know, these universities um, and these uh, accrediting bodies and these rankings. And it's like, ugh, then it's not really about getting the best student <laughs> at that point, right? Because you're not making a sound argument that's rooted in the data. Um, but you're just making money off of people going out and taking a test. And mm. what was it? The Washington Post or New York Times or somebody post wrote an article and they showed the data of white students yeah. from 
from backgrounds of privilege and money always have highest test scores. I mean, if that's not telling, I don't know what is. And what, how much and how much it costs to get that high test score? So the SAT prep, the tutor. And that is also an emerging issue is that they're saying, well, students are not getting high enough test scores because they're not allowed to take it more than once right now. Like, or they have to wait a really long, a much longer time to take the second time. So their ACT and SAT scores are coming back and everybody is low across the board. Mm-hmm. While the parents are not paying for them, they can't, there's a, there's an actual barrier to even the wealthy elite paying for another test session for their students. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an equalizer, but FSU and UF are the two in the top 100. They're like, nope, we're still going to take test scores. Yeah. It's and, crazy. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I feel like it's overlooked or, or people don't really talk about is the segregation of the schools, especially mm-hmm. I'll say in the Southern region, um, like it still exists. And I know when we were thinking about sending our kids to school, we like it mattered to us. And we went to one school and it was predominantly black. And then we went to another school it was predominantly white. Um, and I was like, this, like, this is still, like, this it's is still crazy. Segregated. It's still segregated. And and that frustrates me because I don't, ha- like, when I came to visit, I did my campus interview, I came back to look for somewhere to live. Nobody was having an honest conversation about how segregated Tallahassee really is. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you should have came to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we'd have known you then. <laughs> <laughs> we would have given you the real world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really segregated town. Yes. It yeah. really is. And even just, I mean, from the from the vantage point of being an interracial couple, we are the only, it's like sometimes we're unicorns, you know? And so we have trouble finding other families that look like us. So our kids have friends that they feel comfortable around. They can like create community around. And we're like, we live in Tallahassee. So mm-hmm. good luck to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. You can, you can ask. No, you go ahead with this because I got to pull my notes up. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, you know. This was, okay, so Karen, I am making, so I am helping facilitate the the Division of Student Affairs Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. And part of that, also, we have an advisory board. So Mm -hmm. the four committees that make up this task force, we have two co-chairs per committee and they make up an advisory board. And it's so far been great. They're amazing. And one of the things that we do in the advisory board meetings is we meet and we discuss a resource. And this week, I'm making them read your Addressing Anti-Black Racism in Higher Education, the Love Letters article co-wrote with with the author, with all the authors, because it's so amazing. (laughs) So I'm making them all read it for discussion on Friday. Well, April, thank you for circulating that um, <laughs> and getting welcome. it out it's there. Because so yeah, because we don't want it to stay uh, locked away. But thank you for for circulating that. Um, do you want to ac- hear how that came about? Yeah, I want to uh, hear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped because you were going to start talking. I'm like, so I just want to hear it. That I was wanna- that was my <laughs> question. That was like <laughs> you cued me right in. So <laughs> yes, uh, and we wrote that in like two weeks. Um, so that came about obviously because of the summer, the unrest. Uh, we were having some, finally having some conversations about Black Lives Matter, anti-Black racism in higher education. 
Um, and I'm sorry if I talk too long, y'all stop me. No, uh-uh. no, 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 we're here. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to go all the way back. So I was sitting like, I feel like I had to do, like I was sitting in a place I had to do something. So the first thing I did is I emailed our, our black students in the graduate program in, in higher education. I emailed all the black students and I was just like, Hey, I don't have the words, but I want you to know, I see you. I hear you. I probably feel some of the things that you're feeling. And I want you to know that I'm here. Um, and I emailed the black faculty. There's actually three of us in our department, which is rare, rare Florida State. Um, and I said, hey, we just need to have a Zoom space just for the black students. Um, and then I emailed the department chair and I was like, you know what? We need to say something to our students as a department. And I was nervous about sending that email because like I said, I'm, a, I'm one of the, I'm, I think I'm the only one now on the tenure track that doesn't have tenure in my 20 person department. Um, but I felt like uh, we can't just sit and be silent. Um, this was after the, the, George, the George Floyd killing. Um, and I drafted an email to the entire department and I emailed the department chair and it was, it was well received and, and respected. And then you probably saw the letter from all of the black faculty mm-hmm. who I think Dr. Bugs has been on your, your yeah. podcast. So myself, Dr. Bugs and um, James Wright, we are like, we gotta do something for Florida State. Um, and we drafted that letter and got some black faculty on board. Well, the way how this article came about was I'm on the editorial board for NCORE, which is the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. They have a journal, which is JC Score, um, that the article appears in. And I'm on the editorial board. I got a letter from the editor, or not, I got an email from the editor who's a really close friend. We went to graduate school together at Iowa State. And he was like, I just want I want the black editors to take to take the the letter this this on this issue can y'all write the letter so i was like yeah we can write the letter <laughs> and he was like well you spearheaded and i was like yeah i can do that <laughs> and um i was just like you know what i don't want to write i don't want to center telling our white allies our white colleagues our white people that don't get it uh to to start getting it that's not where i want to start i want to start centering blackness um and the co-authors were on board. They was like, let's write some love letters. So that's kind of how it, it really came about. And, you know, there's people from, you know, Oregon to Grand Valley State um, to Kansas. Like, you know, we're all over the country. Um, we were like, can we write this in two weeks? Yeah, we can write this in two weeks. Just because we had so much to say mm-hmm. and so many recommendations that we think are really, and I, I don't, I'm interested to hear how the conversation goes Friday, April, but like, I think it's really tangible things that people can do. Um, But I also think that we needed black professionals, black professors, black students to see themselves, to see how they are loved, to see that we see their labor, we see their racial battle fatigue. um, And and to say that we we center love and blackness um, in a space, in an article, um, that can be cited, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a blog post. It's not a, a thing we wrote on Facebook. Um, it's something in high, in, in, our, in the field of higher education, in the academy that centers blackness in research articles that don't always center blackness. We understand it. It's a, it's a editorial, it's a letter from the editors, <laughs> but it's, it's something that appears in a journal that often doesn't appear, um, and and I'm I'm proud of it in the sense of um, what how it has got people thinking about the work that they do um, and how oftentimes 
of, well, not oftentimes, excuse me, how higher education was set up to be anti-Black and how we continuously perpetuate that to this day. And can we examine ourselves in that? Um, and I, I like the recommendations too. I think there's some good rep- recommendations in there as well. Yes. Even the fact that you call it the ivory tower. <laughs> I'm like, yep. No. Yeah, we didn't coin that. There's a book called the ivory tower. I know, um, but I'm still, that. <laughs> I, I really, I was very appreciative. I read it again. Um, a couple of hours before we, we joined you on here and um, the recommendations, like usually like the, the letters, I was like, yes, spot on. But I know that with some of the people that I've spoken to, they're like, well, what can we do? And I really like um, one of the, one of the statements in the, in the writing where um, you talked about perf- performative anti-racist expressions of love for black people. I was like, that's usually, <laughs> that's usually where I see it. I'm not going to speak for everyone. That's usually where I see it. And, and the fact that uh, you addressed it. And then at the end, it was like, no, you about to get this work. Like, <laughs> here and, and, Florida, and I'm going to, I'm going to name it. Florida state is good at the performative, right. And being held accountable to the actual action Mm-hmm. is is something that I'm looking forward to because I think the task force can do that. I think the anti-racism inclusion, I don't know the full name, but the, uni- the president's task force, uh-huh. um, I think has the cap- capacity to be able to do something and not just be performative. I think what's happening in student affairs and to the things that you're alluding to April with the committees, I think there's there's so many opportunities for actual action to happen, right? Some, you know, we heard the the proverb, the task force is where the work goes to die, right? Like, I, I don't want that to happen here because it does not have to happen. We have people with a lot of energy and a lot of passion to want to see change. And we just have to hold some folks accountable. Yeah, I um, I, I call them tax forces because it's taxing <laughs> and it's almost like you're paying a tax. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just like, and, and I know that a couple of people have picked up on it um, and they're like, is he saying task forces or is he saying task forces? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm saying tax. No, I'm saying tax forces. <laughs> they're all going to have to use that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's definitely, like you said, where a lot of it is performative. And I hope that we can get beyond that aspect because there is a lot of work to be done, one. Um, and two, I think that now... It is a better time than no other um, because yeah, we can't just put out a diversity statement or you know say that we are about diversity and inclusion and and that's the end of it. We just I think we're way beyond that. We have to really explore what type of systemic change needs to happen because this is institutionalized, and it's <laughs> it's hard when all you see are like you see task forces and they're great. I'm not knocking it because I'm helping facilitate one. Mm-hmm. But if all that comes from that is like, well, you need to go to more like trainings or you need to go to a book club. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm also an assessment person. Like I'm an analyst in my day job. And I truly believe that we have to look at the data. We have to understand what is it telling us about what the institution is doing and is not doing. So if we say we value diversity, what percentage of our faculty and staff are truly diverse? If we're saying we care about that population and they're not here and who's um, one of our mentors, Dr. Shauna Payne Gold, who is 
a vice provost of diversity inclusion at, at Towson. I think. Mm-hmm. She yeah. says, if you care about somebody, they're at the table. Yeah. You don't care about them. They're not there. No matter what you say, you don't yeah. value them enough to be there. My friend, Dr. Jordan West also says she's at GW, um, George Washington in DC. And she says, if you care about diversity, it's in your budget, right? Like it's, it's, it's acknowledged in the budget line where your values are around equity and justice. Um, people aren't, aren't asking for scraps just to put on a speaker, right? Like it's already ingrained in the culture of the institution and it's reflected in the budget. Yes. And not only that, we're paying our people. Right. We, to do the work. Mm-hmm. Yes. To yeah. do the work and to be present. Yeah. You know, the, I would love to do an equity analysis of salaries. Mm. Let's see, she's trying to start. Something. I'm trying to start something. Hey, you're I'm trying, not trying to burn, to start burn, that burn the university down. <laughs> the the other the other piece though is um, is I not not to toot our horns, but we kind of already did some of the task force work with that letter that we sent from the black faculty. Like those things can be implemented now. Now, like I don't think we did anything that w- we said anything was rocket science. A lot of the stuff that we said is rooted in research. Um, about transformative systemic change, right? So when students come here, do they know the history of Tallahassee? Know the history of the institution, right? The histories is a part of racial justice. If they got to take an alcohol one-on-one, they can take a history, <laughs> like, right? They can take a, a, a module that talks about the racial and just, this school got integrated in what, 1960? When was the school integrated? Like, you know, 50, 60 years ago? Yeah, like, we just had that, it's about 60. 60, it's close I think. To 60 yeah. yeah. And there's students that arrive on campus and thought, think it, think it always looks this way, right? Like that's problematic and that only perpetuates all the other things that are happening. And, and I think those things are rooted in systemic change is when we can acknowledge that. Well, we can talk about the other school that's a tr- across the tracks and, and wh- how the role that Florida State has played in the injustices that have happened to FAMU, right? Like, can we have an honest conversation about, about those things, right? There's students that come, there are 40,000 students that come here and there's probably 39,000 of them that will never step foot on FAMU's campus, right? Like, can we have an honest conversation about our own institution? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. my goodness. I have I have one I have one more question. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. I guess I'm a wild card tonight. No, go ahead. I'm I'm get it in. Since we have him here, I want to know because this has been like I you know, the entire summer has been both we've seen it be very difficult for our family and our friends and our colleagues and we've also seen some really great things happen. Um but recently the White House declaration and decree that diversity and inclusion programs are a sham and they are not going to fund them at federal institutions. CRT is racist. That CRT (laughs) is racist. Right. I want to know your take on that because I'm very passionate about this and it's, it's very upsetting. Um, But I'm curious, like what, where, where are you following? What are you thinking about this decree? Yeah, so for those of us that are, are in educa- higher education, you know, this comes across the ticker on Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed, I would, I would encourage people to actually read the executive order. Is the executive order decree? I, I would encourage people to actually read it, right? So they're talking about federal trainings for federal employees, right? And there, then there were institutions like, we have to set down our diversity office if we ever want to get federal funding. That is not in that executive order, Right. Um, so that has been extremely frustrating for me 
is in some ways is giving people an excuse <sighs> and a way out. And I think that was the intention of it. Not, not the, uh, the headliners or the banner, the banner takeaways that I think people have put out. The, the intention was to get to, to affirm people that don't want to do or have conversations about diversity and equity. It gives them an out. And I think that's what the executive order has done. Um, and, that's, and that's where you can actually do the most damage. Like that's where it can be done the most damage. And like resistance is gonna be top 10, right? They got their armor up, they on the battlefield, they got weapons, <laughs> they got you know, bullets they never had before in the sense of, of being able to say, I, I'm not going to Dr. Beatty's talk on racial battle fatigue because racism doesn't exist and this is why, right? Like that's the bullshit now that we have to, we have to battle against. I'm not worried about a diversity, equity, inclusion office getting shut down. That, that's not what that decree said. Like that's, that can't happen. That, that's not what the executive order says. But the idea that we don't need a diversity and inclusion office is a damage that, that, that something like that can do. Or for, like there's, you know, there's always been people that, that have thought that way. But now they have, a, they have a platform and a bullhorn to be able to say those things out loud when before they were scared and nervous to ever say anything. And that's, that's the damage that I think we're gonna be picking up for the next you know, five, five, seven years of, of this particular administration is, is it gives, it's the administration is given permission um, for, for the bigotry, the racism. It's giving people an out. It's giving people an opportunity not to engage with their whiteness for white privilege, white guilt, uh, white fragility. Um, all of those things have been, the permission slip has been signed at this point yes yeah that's exactly what I took from it I was just like oh yeah well and was it I was it Iowa that stopped they were the first institution to yeah, stop I think there were two they wanted they wanted an excuse ah mm-hmm. uh, okay they, they, they can't keep a diversity and inclusion I mean, if you look at you know their the history of that institution they can't keep a diversity and inclusion officer they like to hire former business people to run their institution IBM and other people like they wanted and to me they wanted an out mm-hmm. yeah mm. Okay, I'll let you switch gears. You, you want me to switch gears? <laughs> well, this is your, I know it is, you love this one. Yeah, so, so I'll let you do it. <laughs> so um, I want to know more about uh, Black male mentorship. So at Florida State, I had the privilege of receiving a grant to start um, a Black male um, mentor program under the Division of Student Affairs with um, Dr. Brendan Bowden. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I, I want your, you know, your thoughts on why this is important, why it matters, and and maybe just share with our audience some ways that that this can be done. And, and I I really like what you said about you know if if it's something that matters to you that is in your budget, you know. Um, and I was fortunate enough to receive this grant, so I just want to get your thoughts on that, why it's important, why it matters, and, and maybe some ways that we can be successful at implementing those for anyone else that may be interested. And, and it's it sounds like Daryl, from what I've heard from the men that engage, that you are doing awesome work, right? Um, you you all have the the workout, you know, the physical, mental health I've, I've seen. Um, for me, it's it's about community, right? It's about building community um, and men supporting men in in healthy ways, 
Um, and when that can happen uh, with that men only thrive, right? Men only thrive in a, in a space where they feel supported, safe um, and, and trusted in love. And, and for me, when we think about these spaces for men of color, the work that I would like to see is for us to really think more critically about all men and all masculinities, right? So are all men and all masculinities feel safe in spaces that have been created for men of color, black men, Latinx men, machismo. Um, and really thinking about that, because to me, that's the beauty of it, right? When, when men of all sexual orientations, gender, um, male, gen, or, um, men, uh, men identified people can be in a space and be in community with these types of programs. I think that is, that is the beauty of, of the program. And the other thing is, is offering the space for men, particularly to be able to heal. Um, a healing space is an affirming space, right? So if I can bring my daddy issues, if I can bring um, my disrupting toxic masculinity, if I can bring uh, a, a fem even a feminine side to, to a space that might be hyper-masculine, just think of the beauty of that space, right? In the sense of men going, men leaving that space and being able to be fathers, mentors, teachers, coaches, um, and affirming other men through that process and being a role model for them, right? There's not one way to be a man. There's not one way um, to 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 think about being a man of color. And if I can see multiple ways of that. That's the beauty of diversity, right? We as men of color, we as black men are a diverse group of people. And we are labeled in society as a monolithic thing. Um, and in a space like that, you get to see the beauty of that diversity. And I think that's what those spaces can be, should be, and, are, and, and can be affirming to be. Um, and, and I rambled on. Um, so I don't even know if I've really answered your question. Oh no, so that's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's, we have one more question. Okay. I want to ask you about because we are podcasters. Yes, you are. <laughs> and we love that you are also a podcaster, which I'm going to be honest with you. We actually didn't know until I was like, we really need Dr. Beatty. Like we need to interview him because of all these other things you're doing. Uh -huh. And then we looked on your side. I'm like, He's a podcaster. <laughs> we didn't even know. We we are trying to start it back up. So Scholar T, you found Scholar T. Yes. So Scholar T, I actually co-host with a fellow no, um, Shauna Patterson, Dr. Pa Shauna Patterson Stevens got her doctorate here um, at Florida State. And she's at University of Illinois now um, and doing diversity and inclusion work. Um, but I, it's a fun, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's a fun, um, if people have ever listened to the, uh, uh, the read or um, the friend zone. I always say it's like a mix of the read, the friend zone, a little, a little super soul Sunday mixed with the chronicle of higher education. <laughs> That's how I kind of explain our podcast. Uh, but we like to talk about like hot, we did like to talk about um, hot topics happening in higher education, our take on them. We had, we always love to have our, our goal of the podcast was to highlight scholars of color, particularly in higher ed and their work. Um, was was the goal of the podcast and then 
we like we wanted to show ourselves and our personality. So Shauna shares these jokes of the day. I'm not sure if you got to listen to an episode, but the the jokes are hit. And then I um I share what's problematic. So basically, what's annoying me that particular week. Um, but at the time we were recording it, we were both in Massachusetts, and I would drive to Western Mass. She was working at Williams College. I would drive to Western Mass for a weekend and we would record like three or four episodes. And what was cool about Williams College is they had a state-of-the-art studio that we could record in. So it just sounded so professional. Um, But since then, Shana has had a baby. I am now at Florida State um, trying to get tenure. Um, And we have a couple of lost episodes that we've recorded that we just need to put out um, and we need to start it back up um, and start recording. Cause I do miss it. I really enjoyed it. I see you two and your, the smiles on your faces and the joys that podcasting can bring. Um, I miss that part. Like it's a way of, it's a creative outlet um, that we don't get in our everyday professional lives. And I'm sure you all have, have experienced that and seen that. Um, but I really do miss it. I miss podcasting. That's why you, you emailed me. I was like, podcast, hell yeah. Of course <laughs> I'll, I'll on a podcast. I know, I know the work that put, comes into booking guests, interview questions, editing the damn podcast. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Whew, this is good. This is really good. <laughs> this is really good. I am loving these episodes. Uh, all right. You have anything else? Oh, my gosh. I have like 5,000. No, don't look, don't look okay. over there. Don't put. <laughs> I'm covering up this little okay. notepad or whatever okay. this is. Five we, we'll, we'll have to do this again. Yeah. We'll have to do it we'll again. Yeah, happy back for part two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Save everything on this list that I'm looking at. Save that for part two. Um, so if you don't have anything else, we appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you both for holding space to have the conversation. Thank you for making it fun and energizing. Um, and I I it's been an honor to to engage with you all tonight. I'll tell you what, I knew in the beginning when when he held when he the, glass the glass of wine. We're good. We're good. I was like, yes. The only way we record. Yes. <laughs> well, that's all for me. That's all for me. Until the next time. Bye. Peace. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on any podcast platform and make sure that you rate us. Also, we do have a YouTube channel if you prefer to watch our antics, and we also provide closed captioning. And if you want to know more about us, go check us out on our website at successinblackandwhite.com, or you can reach out to us directly on social media. My social media handle is I am Daryl Lovett on all platforms. And mine is April Dawn Lovett on all platforms.